From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, celebrating the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. This is Brandon Hill. Welcome back, listeners. I'm here today with Ryan and Joshima. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Ryan Gore, a writer at Central Source. Uh, this week on the website, you probably won't find much from me, so you have to go back further. Uh, outside of Central Source, you can find a piece I wrote about uh, Eurocentrism in football, or for American listeners, soccer, um, if you're into that. So yeah, go pick that out. That's on uh, footballparadise.com. And yeah, that's me. Ryan's football piece was amazing, so extra. Thank you so much suggestion to listen to it. I'm Chichpo Wadera. I'm a podcaster at Central Sauce because you will not find a written piece by me on the site yet. But outside of Central Sauce, I'm working on a playlist with over 200 songs by South Asian diaspora artists at Brown Girl Magazine. And I'm Brandon Hill, managing editor at Central Sauce and writer. Um, like Ryan, it has been a while since I've wrote something for Central Sauce, but that's mainly because I've got a few big things I'm working on. So subscribe to my newsletter in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill to make sure that you don't miss those. Uh, really exciting stuff coming. So today we're going to be discussing three pieces from excellent music journalists. We're going to be talking about the creation of the MP3 file and how it revolutionized the music industry. We're going to be talking about Clubhouse, the chaotic lows, and the promising highs. And we're going to be wrapping up with a piece on IDK, who is starting a music business crash course at Harvard. But before we dive into those great pieces, I would love to hear what the two of you have been listening to lately. I'm loving this artist named, I hope I'm not butchering this, Yendry. She has a song called Barrio, and she spent a lot of time between Dominican Republic and Italy, but she's working on a solo project and it's got producers like Ed Sheeran, Jeremiah Jones, Stefan Don. So I'm excited. I really like her. That's cool. That sounds really interesting. Um, yeah, I've been prepared. I've been, uh, I've been preparing for the uh, Man in the Moon 3 release, just um, continually looping uh, between Man in the Moon 1 and 2. Two is the superior album, as you should know by now. <laughs> <laughs> like I found out a few weeks ago from Mickey, shout out to Mickey, that people don't generally accept number two as the best one, and it just it baffles me because it's incredible and it is better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, other than that, um, I've been listening to a group called Other Soul, the UK jazz rap group that um, I was put onto by Thomas Hobbs' podcast, um, Exit of Those Exchambers. Let's check them out, check the podcast out too, because it's really cool and stuff. I haven't listened to that 36 Chambers episode yet, but they always do a really good job of making like artists you haven't heard of super interesting. Like I usually always, after their episodes, go and listen to whatever they're playing. Um, as for me, I've been, like I said, working on some big stuff. So I've been really busy these last couple release weeks and haven't got to some of the larger albums. Um, the St. John album was really, really good. And surprisingly, with that one, since it was kind of filled out with several remixes, I sort of thought that it would be, you know, it wouldn't seem very fresh. But all the remixes were done in a really, like, a really good way. Um, so I think that the album was paced excellent, even with all those remixes. As far as singles go, um, Dende released a feature called Phone Number with Chris Patrick and... 
Oh, I want to make sure I get the other artist's name right. Oh, it doesn't show up on Spotify. <laughs> Chris Patrick's I'm gonna enough. I'm going to get it. Though, hold right? up. Hold up. Chris Patrick's enough. That's your boy. Barry. Yeah. And I'm probably saying that wrong, but I wanted to make sure I got it in there. So, yeah. Um, let's go ahead and jump right in then to our pieces that we're bringing today. Ryan, you're up first. Yeah, yeah. So, um, this piece is from a website called The Quietus, which I'm not actually familiar with. And to be honest with you, I can't remember how I came across this article, but it's called The MP3 at 25, How a Digital File Dynamited the Music Industry, and it's by Eamon Ford. So, uh... Yeah, this piece came out in July, actually July 14th, which is my birthday, uh, 25 years after the creation of the MP3, which was also on my birthday, but before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the most important thing I got from this piece. What did you get? No, I'm joking. Um, so this article is basically Eamon arguing that the MP3 is the most influential music, influential music format in the history of the music industry, above vinyl, CD, cassette. All those different things. Mini disc, you know. <laughs> I absolutely love like how he analyzes the influence of the MP3 over like four distinct periods. Like he breaks it up. And that those periods span from nineteen ninety five to present. And it's just like a really, really comprehensive account of how just this file type, this naming convention, threw the industry into a massive whirlpool that it's like still spinning in today, really. Cause he talks about how in the 90s there was just an unreal amount of money floating about these major labels. And like, he talks about this inevitability that the bubble would burst at some point and like the means of production, I guess, would like fall outside the walls of the labels. And the MP3 was like the signal of that. It was like uh, an entering to this digital space that they just didn't have a grasp on. They just weren't technology technologically savvy enough to understand the impact of it. And yeah, the MP3 was just a massive shock to the record label system because it was like the first piece of music technology that was created outside of their control. Like they created vinyl, they created CD, they created all this stuff. So the MP3 being uh, just completely out of their control, just yeah, it was exp- and that was exploited by people like Napster and then iTunes and then Spotify who um, used the MP3 and used like this digital space to not benefit the labels or even the artists really but benefit their own sales and benefit the consumer so yeah uh what did you guys think of the piece i always think it's amazingly interesting how much tech dynamics really do change everything and how much that these changes have taken place over the last 20 years right which is not a long period of time um and like ryan said you know the main part of this article that highlights highlighting the MP3 is how the MP3 was created outside of the music industry. Um, and it re- uses the, the first big example it uses is vinyl and how it talks about like vinyl as a format was not only, you know, a great way to sell music and to sell albums, which is in, they use the terminology, the software, but also to sell the hardware, which is, you know, the expensive speakers, the expensive record player and all these things that, reinforce, you know, label profits and music industry profits as a whole across the board. And one of the things I found the most interesting, too, was how they talk about, you know, so like labels then invented the CD following up on the vinyl as a way to sell music that, you know, they branded as 
more of a convenience, but you know, with a CD, you still need some kind of hardware to play the CD, right? But in the creation of a CD, at some point, you have to have some kind of digital music file to burn onto the CD. So it's interesting to me how they talk about the music industry specifically not taking advantage of a digital marketplace for music because they wanted to sell a product. Uh, the journalist in this speech, one of my favorite lines, mentions specifically how if the music industry had invented the MP3, it would have been some form of smaller CD. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, Jashma, what do you think of it? I am such a fan of nerdy writing. And <laughs> this is so beautifully dense. And I don't mean dense in a negative way, but it's so nuanced. And I really loved, I think um, there's a portion of the piece where he calls the mp3 a halfway house or refers to something as a halfway house i'm trying to find the line but yeah i'm in love with this piece because i'm a total nerd and i'm really fascinated by the intersection of music and tech a lot's happening in music right now especially with things like complex where the use of avatars and different streaming services and people are white labeling and hacking revenue streams to figure out new api so i think articles like this are really cool yeah, it's interesting that you bring up as well, like the tech industry side of things and how tech influence was with music, because the piece creates this like at the top, you get this like really optimistic view of the MP3 and how the MP3 like gave power to the consumer over the record label and how it like went around all this big business push from the record label. But then at the end, it kind of circles back on itself and it's like, OK, well, now the power is in the hands of the tech industry, right? The label didn't capitalize on it, but the tech industry most certainly did and most certainly has, uh, which, I mean, you could definitely argue the plus minus of that on the music industry as a whole. Like, clearly, it wasn't good for artists when MP3s were just being traded freely on the Internet um, and able to download, you know, such as LimeWire and all that kind of stuff that came sort of, you know, pre-iTunes or pre-Spotify was definitely not a very financial prosperous period for artists, but it's interesting how that sort of jumbled up period paved the way for tech industries to really take over the power in music. Yeah. And like the label's reaction in the piece has Eamon uh, details it is kind of like expressing how you're the best quality always comes from CDs, best quality always comes from um, vinyl, you know, physical products so they can keep selling them. But as we know now, that's not necessarily the case because, you know, we can get high quality music on our streaming services. And the label's reaction to that has been kinder to forego the whole music thing in the first place and just go to the tours and to the merch for actually making their money. So in a way, the label's, the adaptation hasn't been with the technology. The adaptation has been away from the technology, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and another piece of the puzzle, I guess, is how the MP3 destroyed the concept of the album. So I think all of us like to enjoy our album, uh, our music as like bodies of work rather than... I don't know, actually. How do you guys feel about that? Do you think that's a... I, overall 
positive thing than negative thing? Is that old school? Because I definitely like to listen to albums from beginning to end in the order intended. And I believe yeah. that whether it's the artist writing or the songwriter they're writing with, usually there's intention behind those things and the listening experience. And so maybe I'm old school, but I'm not into this whole listen to one song and move on. Right, same. Yeah, yeah I think. I mean, I think that goes for a lot of people who are in the industry, like, you know, music journalists, music writers, other artists, you know, people who are engaged with the industry. Like when I'm listening to music, I put on an album and I listen front to back. But if I'm just using music as more of a background thing, I tend to go for a playlist. But I think if you look at the more general music consumer audience, um, with tech, I mean, the massive amount of the general audience is playlist as opposed to um, album listens. Although I do got to say, this is um, from Rolling Stone. I just read a Rolling Stone, not really a piece. It was more of a graphic. But Rolling Stone did an analysis of what genres are listened to the most uh, as far as like albums start to finish. And hip hop was actually the number two genre that's listened to albums start to finish. Uh, the number one genre, the only one above hip hop, was musical theater, which, which makes so, you know, people, yeah, people tend to listen to a play start to finish. But I, I don't know if I was surprised by that, but it makes, I mean, it's an, it's just an interesting like data point to have. Um, and conversely, the bottom genre that's listened to start to finish is country. So a country music fans tend to pick out, you know, hot singles or particular songs that they like off an album and then play and play and replay those as opposed to hip hop fans, which are more inclined to listen to an album start to finish than they are to just pick out the hot singles. I think that's really cool. I didn't know that. That's hasn't really changed my perspective. I don't know, actually, because I feel like we've faced with playlist culture so much. And, like, music discovery for a lot of people is through playlists. And playlist placements are really important to artists rather than promoting their albums. I feel like they promote singles more. That might just be me. I don't know. But um, I guess my question is to you guys, like, does it really matter that the album isn't as, I guess, revered as it once was? Because, like, part of me is, like, old head kind of, like, oh, no, it got listened to all the way through to get, like, <laughs> you know, the artist's tune and stuff. But does, does it actually matter? Like, if people are still enjoying the music and consuming them through playlists, I guess the artists, do they suffer as much as they think? Is it disrespectful to the artists? What do you guys think? I don't know the metrics behind it, but I would venture to say, right, if previously you received accreditation or a lot of attention or streams on the entirety of an album versus now maybe only one of the six songs you release gets mm. a certain type of attention then maybe but I don't look right I think times change attention spans change nobody can listen to each other anymore and maybe that's changing back to the way it used to be but I I, I don't know if it's as damaging as they make it sound but maybe it is. I don't know well, I think it goes back to how much of the power in the music industry is now in the hands of tech. Because as we've talked about before on the podcast, with the way Spotify tries to reinforce their streaming numbers, they're taking popular artists and pulling their songs onto playlists and pushing those playlists. So, you know, on the tech side of things, maybe if you're a big popular artist like Drake and your songs are all over every playlist that's pushed everywhere, sure, you're benefiting from the fact that people don't have to go directly to your album to get your music but if you're a small artist who's putting time into 
Well, you know, like for a small artist to catch on, they want to put out some kind of album. Well, I, okay, actually, I guess that's not true because big singles bang too. But I guess what I'm what I'm what I'm saying is that in general, with the business model in the power of the tech industry, they're not pushing small artists singles as much as they are pushing the larger artist singles. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think so many discovery things play into that logic. Um, that, and I think we overtly separate music and tech when many, many tech prop platforms are usually funded or invested in by musicians or music conglomerates. So I think that's something to think about too. Well, title especially, um, and you hear all the time about like how good of a platform that title is compared to Spotify or Apple Music, and you hear the same thing about Audio Mac too. So maybe that shows like what can be done more on the positive side when tech companies are being ran by people who are music minded as opposed to tech minded. Yeah, I guess like technology is something that music has industry in general, both in in the actual label system and even in journalism, as we saw with the uh, the dot-com boom and crash, um, that technology is a really hard thing to reconcile with music because at the end of the day, we just want to enjoy the art and the way it gets to us, like the way we consume it and the way it gets to us, it's always going to be dependent on the state of things. Like, as a casual listener, like, if you can get your stuff for free, why wouldn't you? You know, if you can get it for five ninety nine a month and get everything, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you make take advantage of the technology? But if you... Um, I guess if you're more... I don't want to say old school. I don't can't find the right word for it. But if you have a certain mind, you might just want to reject the whole thing but that kind of leaves you alienated look at an institution like title right does it doesn't it have to leverage larger artists bodies of works anyway to incentivize folks to come onto the platform as opposed to using another platform it's through exclusivity of content Hmm. yeah and i mean even beyond direct music content you know title runs uh, several exclusive podcasts and se- that are all that are like music focused podcasts, as opposed to Spotify, who also runs exclusive podcasts, but they're not just music focused podcasts. Maybe the world's evolving. <laughs> Maybe definitely. <laughs> Maybe us geezers need to get with it. That's possible. No, it's the children who are wrong. <laughs> I think. Well, one of the things that's definitely changing is, and they talk about this in the article, is how, you know, we grew up when we were first buying music, it was a physical process, right? Like you went and bought CDs, probably most of us are probably like CD generation. Yeah, Circuit City, man. Well, now you have so and then we lived through the trans the transition from like, physically buying music to now buying MP3s, right? Well, people are growing up now, they don't go through a phase where they're physically buying music unless they go out of their way to do that. So there's a whole generation coming up that this is the norm for them. And it's not like they don't feel like they're missing out on anything because they they haven't missed out on anything. Whereas like, you know, I'm uh, uh, I collect a lot of vinyls, 
which is one of the reasons I felt like Ryan picked this piece to target me <laughs> because there's that, I want to, there's that very, uh, oh, that yeah, part. The, what, the what is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the apostles of the LP, the L apostles will inevitably claim that is the most influential music format ever. It has weathered the storms and endured every trend, they will say, and is still being sold almost three quarters of a century after its pressing. For them, the numerics 33 and a third are treated with the same reverence as a verse in the scriptures. Vinyl is a religion, and like all religions, it is propped up by a lot of blind faith. Scathing. <laughs> I like vinyl Scathing. as well, though. I like, if I could, I would collect vinyl, too, just because I like it's like album, but bigger. Like, why would I not want it? <laughs> that might but now also it feels be my like... favorite paragraph in the whole piece. I think it's ridiculously oh, it beautifully written. And well, and one of the things that like I knew it was so good is because like as an avid vinyl collector, like I read when I finished that little section, I felt like I was a shill. I was like, I'm playing <laughs> directly into the media industry hands. Like I have allowed this stifling of freedom or something like that, which is always good. Brandon's like, uh, and I am vinyls, also... vinyls are me. This is my religion. <laughs> but the the article also played really well into that unique tone, right? Like this article easily, it's in the opinion section of the website, right? And it could have easily been a straight up factual feature. So, you know, I'm interested to know about the choice between like just, what, you know, the more effective way of telling the story, like writing down everything factually and just delivering it as a feature piece or in the way that the artist did it, or sorry, the journalist did it, adding a little bit of humor, adding a little bit of editorial, because it still didn't feel overly opinionated to me. Like, I, I didn't feel like it was someone who was just telling me what to think. You know, they very much, like, provided all the information that you need to follow their conclusions and follow their editorial views. If that, uh, if that does it, if anybody has anything else to add on this, so we can go ahead and move into Joshma's piece. That's good. Alrighty. My piece is called Promising Highs and Chaotic Lows of Clubhouse by Andre G. I'm becoming such a fan of Andre G's writing. Um, Facts. He's incredibly talented journalist, but I have been on Clubhouse for about a month and a half since like early October. And... The app has become this sort of haven for people. What started out as a VC investor financial um, audience has turned into a very, very, very large entertainment audience. And it's an invite-only drop-in audio app. So you open Clubhouse, you have an icon with your profile picture, and you can hop in and out of different rooms and clubs talking about different topics. In theory, you're not supposed to record Um, Some people do, and if you're on Twitter, you've likely seen some of the things that have happened on Clubhouse, outside of Clubhouse. It's supposed to be like Vegas. You know, what happens there should not be talked about, (laughs) but it's being talked about. Andre does a great job of talking about what's happened in the music industry specifically. At any given time, there's probably 10 plus rooms about music. There's been celebrities, artists, producers, A&Rs, legals, in and out. There's listening rooms, there's pitch rooms, but... I thought Andre did a great job talking about the pros and cons of being on there as an artist and the volatility that comes with a platform where you have much less control over how things you say are perceived or utilized. 
But it's also been super beneficial. Lupe Fiasco is on Clubhouse almost 24-7, talking about food and array of and an array of other things. Drake found a producer on there that he started following after she played some of her work. So I think it's really, really exciting and interesting, but I think there's definitely going to be a lot of challenges as the app opens its beta to the public and more and more people start getting on a platform that has very little regulation. What do you guys think? Well, first of all, Ryan, have you been on Clubhouse? No, I found out what it was last week when I asked Joshua what it was. <laughs> yeah, so prefacing this conversation, I also have not been on Clubhouse. So it's interesting to read. I guess my first thoughts are coming from having seen a lot of the stuff on Twitter about Clubhouse, but not having direct experience with it. So, you know, I have developed like preconceived notions about what it is, what's going on there, all based on secondhand conversations that are taking place on Twitter. So from that perspective, it was really nice to read how Andre broke down exactly, you know, the facts of like what it is, how it operates, what's going on, what's the purpose of it. And he very quickly covered like the highs of it, the potential of it, and then also like the crushingly low lows of it. And I think he especially put it into context of how Clubhouse is an app that's in beta, right? So all these problems, all these highs and lows are all things that could be exponentially larger when the app is more accessible to a general population. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that Andre touches on, which if you're not on the app, can be disheartening to read, is all of the issues in rooms with lack of moderation. So for context, when you're in a room, you can be a moderator, I moderate two rooms every week. Um, And essentially, you're making sure everybody gets time to speak, isn't interrupting one another, there's no hate speech going on, and you can move folks to audience. But it is a very real reality, specifically in the music industry rooms, that a woman will be speaking, and Andre says this, and a a male will come in right after them, and they're given the floor. And he talks about the patriarchal power dynamics in the app, and talks about how these are not unique to Clubhouse, right? Misogyny, bad faith discussions, controversy, attention-seeking, gaslighting. They're very normal societally. But I think what, what, what becomes hard is when you're on a landscape like Clubhouse, there's so many different communities on there, right? There's folks pitching finance. There's people talking about global health. There's people talking about trash Netflix shows. I mean, you name it and it's on there. But I think when you're in these massive rooms with different celebrities or rappers or singers and artists of massive notoriety, and then you hear the way everybody engages with each other, it kind of becomes like a, well, shit, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and like any social media app is going to reflect the flaws of like the larger world within its space, I guess. And that becomes a really big problem when you have situations like Facebook and Twitter where people get their news and stuff from these websites. <laughs> and like, but the problem there is that the people running them do not care. Like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack, whatever his name is, do not care. Like they generally have no interest whether or not like there's fake news or hate speech on their website. Like it's chill to them. So, oh, you- even, even further than that, um, Fake news, hate speech, stuff like that, it's profitable. It spreads faster. It gets more people engaged. They have every incentive to not stop or limit it. Yeah, exactly. So I guess you kind of have to hope that the creators of Clubhouse are better than that and that they implement, like Andre kind of suggested, 
and that I guess already exists is like a mandatory moderator kind of thing where you know that yeah essentially what Justin said what a moderator does you know um, but as Andre says in the piece people are biased and not everyone's going to be a great moderator and I guess that's a lot of people to track every single room on Clubhouse and it's yeah it's a super difficult thing much harder to do than it would be on Twitter or Facebook uh, but they still don't do it so <laughs> it's really nuanced right when you're when yeah. you're in the app you in some degree have to remember you're voluntarily exposing yourself to different conversations so you'll find on Twitter everybody's biggest like everyone at any given time I'm sure if we opened up Twitter right now Folks are like, man, all these experts on Clubhouse, all these folks that think they know what they're talking about on Clubhouse, all this misinformation on Clubhouse. But who's to say what is misinformation, what isn't, right? There are blatant things that might be about what's going on in the world. But in the music industry, I, I don't I don't know, right? There's a lot of conversation surrounding what one person says and what another person says and what's actually happening. But I think the biggest thing I've noticed between Twitter and being in the app is folks realizing that people they idolized don't necessarily present themselves vocally the way that they might have thought they were. Explain what you mean by that. So if I'm in a room with some artist I am a huge fan of, and then I hear them say something really, really stupid or really, really offensive, (laughs) I think a lot of folks weren't prepared for how jarring that would be um, because it's not a press-controlled environment, right? It's not Instagram. It's not Twitter. You're not deleting things, you're talking, and people can hear you. Right. That was definitely one of the things that I was thinking about is the difference the different dynamics between audio and between uh like Twitter, where things are text. There seems there's a much there's a much larger filter between typing a tweet, reading the tweet, and sending the tweet out than there is just I can speak when I want to speak and I can say whatever I want. So it seemed much more likely to amplify certain issues, which makes it a very touchy dynamic for, I mean, for example, one of the first things I, I thought about, and because I saw a lot of this on Twitter is the tendency for men to be boisterous individuals and loud and particularly to speak over women and not just a tendency for men to do that, but also for men as a, as a, as a biased moderator or even as an audience member to give more weight to men in a particular conversation just because that's how people think. And Twitter has ways that sort of cut down on that, right? Like no tweet is in particularly louder than another tweet in a conversation. I mean, I guess if you count like favorites and we- and retweets, but you can still have equal accessibility to all the information in a conversation on Twitter if you go for it, right? And then the added fact that something like Twitter or something like Facebook does have a certain level of accountability where everyone can see what your content is. They can see what you're saying. They can go back and look at what you're saying. Who's to say that someone in Clubhouse that's kicked out of one conversation or kicked out of one room for doing something doesn't just move their toxicity to the next room, right? Which, I mean, does happen a lot, right? There will be conversations and break-off rooms and spin-off rooms from things and then they manifest into larger things. And that's usually what you're seeing on Twitter. But I will say there are a lot of positives to Clubhouse, one of them being that it brings me insurmountable joy to connect with people during a pandemic. But also, I probably spend way too much time on there. I've done like six nine hour rooms, 
questionable on if I should be doing that. But I do think for musicians in particular, I've gotten to see artists sing in front of producers they never could have dreamt of even getting an email with and rappers talking to mix and master engineers and everyone in between. And some of the industry is dropping, I think, very quality information, especially on a business side. Bryson is often in music journalism rooms that are really, really dope, where we can each talk to each other about how to get different bylines, how to write quality articles, what it's like being a journalist, the parts of things that nobody talks about, right? No one's telling you super blatantly in the last like 10 years how much they were getting paid per piece, right? Or what that looks like for all of us. And now they are a little bit on Twitter, but it's become like a little bit of a safe space to have these conversations if you're in quality rooms. And I will preface that with being that the app might be going public or opening its beta you see what you want to see, right? So like any other social media platform, what you interact with is what you are shown. So I am often shown VC funding, healthcare pitching, and a lot of South Asian things and music things, because that's pretty much me. And so if you interact with what you want to see, you'll likely see that. But in the music space, it gets a little tricky. But I think Andre did a great job of giving a very comprehensive overview after a few weeks of sitting in and being a fly on the wall in a couple of different rooms. Yeah, definitely. I think like saying Andre did a great job is just like a universal thing. Like <laughs> <laughs> that can be applied to anything. But yeah, like the way at the start of the article he talks about kind of like the purity of what Clubhouse could be and the great things that it's given us, like the beat battles and the whole <laughs> everything that Lupe does, like stuff like that makes it's such a weird roller coaster. Someone like who hasn't got the app or didn't really have an interest in the app before the piece, like going through the highs and those going like, oh, this sounds really cool. Like, I'd love to be part of that. To be like, oh, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say one of my favorite rooms is the Pussy Rap and all that series. They do do a really interesting job of talking about how female rappers should be judged on their merit, not their bodies, and how there are a lot of female rappers that can drop bars. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't always have to be about... um, objectifying them yeah i mean it seems like at its highest level with good moderators good conversations like people who know what they're talking about people who give space to other people and aren't just there to you know sort of flex or to sort of make a statement for their self right that it has an incredibly high potential and i think that's really what andre is trying to tap into here but he's not ignoring the low sides of it. And he's talking especially to me, like to me when I read this, the biggest concern is really what happens when it opens up to public. And I get the impression that the opening up to the general public is much more likely to amplify the low points than it is to amplify the high points. Like you said, Joshma, it's like any other social media app. It's up to you how you use it and what you see. But I mean, is there really the way that we see people interact with Twitter and with Facebook and with the spread of false information on there and how much people are complacent to conform to their own bias, do we really see that Clubhouse suddenly becomes a platform where that's less of an issue? You know, to me, it's about the difference between like the dynamic of vocal conversations and text conversations. And it seems like vocal conversations become more of an issue for amplifying the problems that we've seen on other platforms than they are for uh, eliminating the problems that we see on other platforms. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do when, when we're, because this whole episode is centering around music and tech and information, misinformation. <laughs> I, I look at two things, right? I was surfing complex land this weekend and this morning and, you know, the, the biggest thing on, on the field of music tech is integrating fashion and avatars, right? Digital avatars, you can be in this 360 VR sort of world online and interact with each other and bring back that component that the pandemic has sort of taken away from live events. But then the other side of it is something as simple as Clubhouse or audio drop-ins that different apps are likely going to start integrating brings back the level of simple human interaction, right? Like, I, there's so many people on Clubhouse that probably know things about me that you guys don't know, and whether that's good or bad or scary, you develop these Clubhouse friends and you have this community and I think that stems from wanting to have a lower barrier of entry to each other and to knowledge. And so in music, I think what that'll be conducive for in the future is there. we've seen what happened with verses, right? Who's to say a brand can't sponsor a listening room for an artist in Clubhouse and then you're looking at metrics of maybe 800 people or maybe it's 8,000 people when it opens up, right? So these now allow opportunities to get in front of folks in a much different way that isn't tied to the visual asset. And I think that the visual asset is usually what really disenfranchises up and coming artists because of budgets. That's a really interesting point, um, specifically about how it increases the feelings of community. Cause when you're, you know, when you're interacting with people on Twitter, it seems much easier to not consider that there's a human being behind the account. Right. Cause you know, it's obviously, or, um, usually some kind of like avatar, some kind of AV, you know, people might not even might not use a picture of their self on their Twitter. So it becomes much easier to think of these interactions as more in a digital space. And Clubhouse, you know, when you're hearing someone talk, and you're hearing their voice and hear like literally hearing the tones and how they respond to things, it is a higher level communication, which adds a higher level of community and a higher level of bonding and and a higher level of getting to know people. The unofficial back channels of Clubhouse are Twitter and Instagram, right? And so it's sort of funny because people will be in an app and be like, oh, we want to (laughs) share, we want to share something with you. Uh, How do I do that? There's no chat function. I wish there was a chat function. And then you find that people are only following each other on Twitter or Instagram with connections they really want to make. And then they reference things you actually said in conversation that were really attractive to them or useful or informative. But I mean, there, there's, there's also clubhouse lingo because they're slang on functioning the app. So PTR means pull to release. So you essentially pull the screen down and then it refreshes, but you can change your profile picture. So for many, many rooms, because there's no other way to communicate or share photos, you're like, want to see a picture of my dog? It's now my profile picture. This is what I look like as a baby. This is me with Kanye West 10 years ago, whatever the case may be. So I think it is a far more personal experience. And how do we police people's voices? I'm not really entirely sure if that's what we should be doing or can do. Um, but I agree with Andre, right? I think anytime something gets bigger, it gets more uncomfortable. And I think this is about to get really uncomfortable. Yeah, it'll be interesting well to see where it is in a like I guess in a year's time even. Just with the way Twitter is absorbing every little quirk about every other app at this point. It'll be interesting to see if they just have like group DMs where you can do the same thing. Which is something I'm I guess I'm like interested in is how technology develops and how we're sold the myth that 
capitalism means that we get lots of diversity and like lots of competition of people doing different things, but really it's just pure monotony. So yeah, that's something I'm interested in. Someone who just likes tech and wants to see how things progress. I'm always fascinated. And I guess I'm still of mind that somehow, despite all of the new tech platforms and social media platforms and Discord channels and what have you for artists, there's still artists out there that can get 100 people to show up for 15 to $30 per ticket and enamor and leave enamored by that experience. And and I have a hard time feeling like digital will ever give me anything like that. But maybe it's like what Brandon said, and people that have never experienced live concerts will never miss that because they don't know what it is to go to it. Oh, God, don't give me that dystopia. <laughs> that <sounds horrible. laughs> Terrifying. Maybe we're That's, all just uh, going to be on complex land with our avatars. <laughs> I was I was already thinking of the Black Mirror episode 20,000 Merits yeah. when you were talking about um, the complex land avatars. Like, everyone lives their life in a little box and just interacts digitally. Oh, it's so scary. I mean, listen, Lil Nas is performing on Roblox. Everybody's on Twitch. Discord is happening. There's apps trying to figure out how to help artists monetize through digital. So, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like there's a lot of noise, and other days it feels like there's a lot of opportunity. This episode of In Search of Sauce, Silicon Valley, brought to you by <laughs> Central Sauce. All right, is that... Does anybody else have anything to add on the... uh... What was that? I feel like music tech companies should get reviews by journalists, like critical music journalists as their (laughs) beta users of like, if you were going to write about this, what would you say? Go. (laughs) All right. Well, if that wraps it up for this article, The Promising Highs and Chaotic Lows of Clubhouse by Andre Guy. I will go ahead and introduce my article. So my article is in Rolling Stone. It is titled, Rapper IDK Will Teach a Music Business Crash Course at Harvard by Hayden Sahli. And so first and foremost, what really set this piece apart for me was how uh, Hayden Sahli turned a basic news story into a pseudo, pseudo profile with objective commentary. So like the basic log line for the story is simply that Rapper IDK is opening a 10-day music business course at Harvard, but Sahli goes behind the press release and uses IDK's own words to not just outline what the course is, but why he was inspired to start it and why it's necessary while sufficiently filling out the MC's profile with added context that's needed for the story. So his success story, IDK's, isn't an uncommon one in hip-hop. After getting out of jail, he turned to music for the chance to avoid going back to jail And he didn't have much education, but he struggled through teaching himself the ropes on, you know, music business, on contract, litigation, stuff like that. And now that he's had some success, the first thing that he wants to do is outline that educational process for other artists who are at a similar disadvantage. And I think of particular emphasis in this piece is the idea of helping out people who have felonies in particular in the music industry. Because rap really has this, and not just rap, but several other isolated industries of the type, have this incredible power to subvert the disenfranchisement of a felon working class. And so a history of mass incarceration has created this whole class of labor that's forced to work under terrible conditions with low pay because they have no leverage with their employer. And I myself have spent the last six years working in bars and restaurants, which are 
one of the most prolific industries that take advantage of this feature. Like being a line cook has to be one of the most difficult and underrespected jobs and one of the most accessible careers for anyone with a felony. I've known personally line cooks that have worked at over a hot stove for 40 years without ever having a single paid sick day or vacation day. And we're talking about 60-year-old men working in 100-degree conditions for shit pay because of a felony that they got in their 20s. And because there's always another unemployed felon ready to take their spot and jobs for felons are hard to come by, the employees have little to no leverage to argue for better pay or better conditions. That is a system designed to increase recidivism and create cheap labor. It's not a failure of the system, but a classist feature. So first of all, it's incredible that IDK was able to self-educate himself to overcome this trap, but I don't want to sensationalize that victory because it's not the case for a majority of the 24 million disenfranchised felons in the United States. And to me, that's why it's so cool that IDK would crunch down that education that he had to go through into a 10-day crash course that includes financial literacy, contract negotiations, the difficulties of networking, social media strategy, and even particularly interesting to me is the topic of mental health, all tools that the system normally benefits from withholding. Uh, so what did you two think of the piece? What did you two think of the larger concept involved and about IDK in general? I, I guess start off with how familiar are you with IDK's music? Well, before that, um, on those don't I go in it, there's a different author name. I have Samantha, really? his song. Oh, I, okay, I was, no, I was naming, so Hayden Sahli is the photographer. Ah. Apologies, Samantha, his song, is the author of the article. Okay, there we go, shout out to Samantha, sorry. Yep, I, I read that name below the cover photo, sorry about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. before this piece, I hadn't heard of his music, actually. I had, I listened to the one with the MF Doom feature, the album, the album. Um, are, are is that there, IDK and Friends, probably? Maybe? I don't know. It had like, uh, it was the cover was him in the orange jumpsuit and it said, yeah, it was him in the orange jumpsuit in jail or something like that. Oh, I the, was very bad. Yeah, yeah. It had the song where he just sings, um, Kanye's family business for like an entire verse. For some reason, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I was sort of familiar with his music, not heavily into it though, to be honest. Yeah. I caught up with him probably 2018. Uh, early 2019 with Is He Real and then the two IDK and Friends tapes. Um, and I think Once Upon a Time Freestyle with Denzel Curry is like my favorite Denzel Curry song, uh, funny enough. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with his music. I follow him. I really like his stuff. And I think he's even like before I read this article, I was really interested in how he moves in the industry, like the types of things he does. Um, and I was actually talking to Ben Carter of Hip Hop Numbers about it when it comes to IDK and Friends. And we had this conversation about whether or not IDK is a super creative person who's just a great facilitator of lots of artists and he wants to work in that way, or whether or not it is like an entirely like a label, like pack with names and get it out to sell because of the names. And now after reading this article, I think it's a bit of both. I think that IDK is very business minded in how he puts things together. And I also think that he's not just doing it purely because it's a business minded thing, but because it has to do a lot with like his creative side and his want to see other people succeed. Dude, he cares. Like 
this is a step like it's a small step right now but hopefully it grows into a really big step towards an industry that's shaped by people who actually care about artists the fact that like the courses for musicians managers publishers A&Rs and others like in the music industry right so the way I see it in an ideal world you get a generation of people coming through into the industry who center art the fact that the course is curated by him by an artist the people who the industry should serve really tells me that hopefully we'll get up to a point where we don't have artists neglected by labels who don't have young artists being signed who don't know how to move in business or who are willfully exploited we actually have an artist label relationship or an artist industry relationship that's actually like symbiotic in a way i guess like there's actually a benefit in it for the artist and like as you say having mental health be part of the curriculum i guess like it's super important because how many artists have we lost man how many artists have we lost to mental health conditions over the last few years it's just it it can't keep happening it's too much and the fact that yeah he's so aware of all these issues like both systemic systemic in the um prison industrial complex all that being a felon but also all these intricate issues in the industry the fact that he has taken a step to just correct all that is incredible and like i don't know how many people are actually doing this yeah i mean this was my favorite piece of the three for a multitude of reasons but i think that to start with, at the very least, there is so much ambiguity in the music and entertainment industry, whereas any other field, pretty much, give or take, there's a pathway. And if there's not a pathway, there's some level of understanding what contracts should look like, what pitching to someone might entail, what these terms mean. In music, it's such a scarcity mentality-based industry, from what I've experienced and learned, that folks are have have worked so hard to get certain positions deals opportunities that it's almost like opening doors or making things transparent hinders their ability to maintain whatever it is that they've earned and i think for an artist to go and be like no we're not going to be ambiguous anymore we're going to create tools that are transparent and teach you what a record deal looks like what a streaming service distribution revenue looks like what split sheets look like I think it's empowering the artist in the way the artist has never been empowered before, right? For so long, artists have been convinced that they need to sell their soul or their art to these massive conglomerates that somehow hold the keys. What does a label hold, right? A label has marketing affiliations. They have press affiliations. They can get coverage. They have funding. They have the best editor or the best producer. And essentially, it's just capital, right? So if you were able to dissect those things and understand what you as an artist needed to do and how to find it, maybe the record you shop is 10 times better the next time you create an independent record. Maybe you don't get screwed over. or Maybe you don't screw a producer because they actually get royalties because they're actually registered where they should be registered. Because I manage an artist probably the last six months, I've learned so much more by doing and by asking than I could have ever Googled or figured out. And and that's coming from, like, the artist I manage is exceptionally privileged and went to Berkeley and Harvard. And so even after that, there's ambiguity. How crazy is it that you went to a music school and we still have things that we have no idea about? And so I think that and what you said about the prison complex and talking about 
how to help communities deal with mental health issues and lack of job opportunity, right? If you learn how to monetize music properly, you could cut your years of having to work six different jobs while making music in half, potentially, if there's someone to educate you on what streaming looks like. And then we touch on things like Opportunity Atlas, right? Like how many people have access to the knowledge we have access to in comparison? How many people are leaving with the tools to know what to Google? I know that's everyone's go-to answer for everything is like, I didn't learn anything in school. I had to Google everything and I had to do it. And I appreciate that sentiment because I had to do it that way. But I do think that there's a level of even having the tools and the language to understand what it is that you're looking for is often something that in a lot of communities, people don't realize is such a immense privilege. So I think he's incredible and I cannot wait to see what happens next. Right. And, you know, it's like, it's not an an issue of capability. It is, it's an issue of accessibility. And you had this like pre-internet age where labels were, it was intentional making that information not accessible. They served as the gatekeepers who, you know, got the say in who qualified for that information and who didn't. And now that you have so many of these artists, like it's a, it's a sort of a step-by-step phasing process, right? Like the internet comes along and then you have these artists who figure it out on their own, right? They don't, they don't go through a label. They figure it out on their own. And now it's on those artists to make the decision, okay, do I withhold the information to give myself a benefit and to give myself an advantage? Or do I pass this information down so that more people can succeed and get, get through the gatekeeping and through the hurdles that I had to struggle to get through? And when you have rappers like IDK, who are emphasizing the accessibility of that information, it just opens up the industry as a whole. And particularly with his business-minded aspect of this too, along with this class, he also has that label. And a requirement for joining his label was to have taken the class. So he not only is making this information accessible and helping people out, but like he did, like what I said with his albums, the IDK and Friends albums, He's also keeping that business-minded aspect for himself and creating a successful route for himself while also helping people out. So it shows that there can be a symbiotic relationship there, right? Like there can be two sides of it. You don't have to be the major label that gatekeeps the industry and uses predatory contracts and rips money from people and success from people while also like withholding all of this knowledge and you don't have to also just like completely forgo your own interests and be like the mother Teresa of the music industry like you can keep your own interests while also making that information accessible yeah because who benefits from like smarter artists everyone charity everyone begins benefits. at home right as cheesy yeah. as that sounds but I also think he's setting up the precedence which is something I firmly believe in is Oftentimes when people talk about artists in any industry, it's like, a I, I don't want to be a part of the business. My creative creation is being adulterated. And I can appreciate that sentiment. But any person in any career has to be a level of self-entrepreneurial to succeed, right? So artists need to do that too. And I think by setting up a program in a class like this, he's making it less scary to be an artist that is entrepreneurial and well-versed, right? Because... He's trying to position it so that artists are aware that knowledge is power. It's not you becoming so business-minded that you don't get to be creative anymore, right? Which is often, when you're talking to different communities, the disconnect, right? They, they assume that 
having knowledge or doing things means that they have to give up something creatively. And it doesn't. It just means that you can manage your art better and make it work for you better. Yeah, it stops artists from feeling that they've been shoved out into the cold by the industry or shoved out into the cold for having a passion and for wanting to pursue music. Like, the worst feeling (laughs) that I'm kind of feeling right now having finished uni this year is, like, finishing and then not knowing where to go. But, like, this is a clear path. Like, yes. And even like the label thing, like musicians who finish it, at least you have that chance, you know, that you might be picked up by his label. Like there's a path. And that's like the most comforting thing. Like, and this, a sense of direction, I guess, is what it provides, which is super valuable beyond the actual course itself. Like after the course, you have a direction, you know what to do, which is not something that a lot of people finishing uni can say. Yeah, that I mean, that's huge. And I mean, it also just reinforces too, like, if you go from the course to his label, he, you know, the label knows the kind of education you've received. Yeah. So you, I, I, like, none of these contracts have been drawn up yet, obviously. But I bet if you look at these contracts, they might even go as far as to be an ethical model for what good contracts look like between an artist and a label. Because you have just given this person all of the education they need to ensure a fair and balanced contract. Mm-hmm. If you're going to ask them to con- to sign a contract now, they have the weapon to argue and dispute it because you willingly gave it to them. Like that is such a brilliant, like ethically minded situation that you just don't see. You always, always, always in business dealings, parties who have the power to withhold information or the power to use leverage, use that leverage. So to get this like great like ethical scenario from someone who is clearly very business knowledgeable and had they had the option to use their knowledge as leverage and chose to make it accessible is a brilliant statement and an excellent model to follow. Yeah, I definitely think, right, and I and I don't want to sound anti-label because I'm actually not. I think that there's pros and cons in every artist's career to sign or to not sign or to release certain singles, music, whatever, bodies of work with labels. I just think label relationships are conducive when you know what you're getting into and you know what your pros and cons are and you can negotiate well for yourself. The ability to advocate for yourself and have a team and have the knowledge to have a manager that isn't with a label and an attorney that isn't with a label. I think that's what I'm in favor of, right? Because I think often artists, like even in indie culture, like then we get into what is really considered independent in a world where streaming services can also sponsor releases and you could do single deals with record labels. Like what does it mean to be truly independent? Um, But I think that there is a culture of like, anti-label sentiments and I get it right but there are also pros to a label and it's the idea is label or not for you to be well equipped as a musician who is an entrepreneur to have a successful career as a side note also having followed IDK this was the first that I've actually seen that the um, abbreviation for his name stood for something and IDK stands for ignorantly delivering knowledge. I always I always thought it was just sort of a misnomer for I don't know. But to hear that like from the very inception of his career, like this has been an intention of his. And I mean you like after having seen that too, you can also go back and see it in his music. For example, like the album Is He Real is a very conceptual album 
where he talks about the struggle of believing in God and following organized religion and what what sort of cost benefit and and he leaves it out very ambiguously to give people access to the information and give people access to the concepts without directing them to the answer. So it's just it makes like this article now just makes so many things make sense for why like IDK does the things he does. And that's incredible to get in an article that could have just been a press release, right? It could have just been a simple statement that here's a rapper and he's starting a business education course at Harvard and here's the information in your inverted period structure and go. But no, the journalist in this really like made this short press release info into a story with lots of what's the word I'm looking for? Lots of uh it's like wider significance, to, right? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, wider things to think about, things to Yeah, because like something that you and I have been talking about is the idea of artists being like walkthroughs. Like something that we've been talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and this yes. is kind of the same thing. Like artists through their music uh kind of provide walkthroughs like a video game would for certain situations or certain emotions that you can go through. Like Kid Cudi. Speaking about like Kid Cudi, like the way that he has managed the way he talks about mental health in his music, the way that we've seen him glow up, I guess, over the years, is kind of like having this artist have to do this walkthrough for us, how to get better in that sense. And this is kind of a walkthrough for the music industry, which are super useful sometimes, because, yeah, games are hard and the industry is hard. All right. Well, if no one else has anything to add on IDK... Go ahead and wrap up that conversation. And thank you again to, I'll make sure I get the journalist the right name this time, uh, Samantha Hisong for her article in Rolling Stone. Rapper IDK will teach a music business crash course at Harvard. And we would also like to shout out Andre Gee for Complex, for the promising highs and chaotic lows of Clubhouse, as well as, if I scroll up to the top here, Eamon Ford. Eamon Ford. Eamon Ford, for the MP3 at 25, how a digital file dynamited the music industry in the quietest. Thank you for listening. And as always, if you are a writer or you follow other small writers whose work we may not have seen, um, please send us their stuff. We will read it. We may feature it on the podcast. We like to get a wide range of voices, writers, and publications involved in this show. And please, if you have listened... Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, That really, really helps us to grow our platform, which in turn grows the size of the platform that we can share with these excellent writers that we cover on this podcast. Yep. Thanks for listening, guys. Catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening. I'm always curious, everyone listening, tell us what you learned from the three pieces, because today I learned Napster was named after a username, and I would have never known that, so... Yeah, that's true. I didn't know that either. And it wasn't actually made by Justin Timberlake. Who who thought? Who knew, friends? But thanks for tuning in, y'all. All right, we'll see you next time. This episode of In Search of Souls featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, and Joshua Waterer of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Bass T. Thanks to Joel Preckers for the business use. 
This has been a Central Source Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links for past teacher of records, Central Source Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.